and you're very welcome along to another edition of The Staff Room. This Staff Room, we're joined by Kate Malloy. Kate, I'm lucky because Kate is a friend of mine, and Kate is also the secretary of SESI, who keeps us all in line. SESI exec secretary is our Kate Malloy. But more than that, Kate is a learning technologist with the Centre for Excellence in Learning and Teaching in NUI Galway. And I was just saying offline, it just rolls off the tongue. Just, just rolls off the tongue. She's also a lead on the Irish University Association Enhanced Digital Teaching and Learning Project. Now, prior to this, prior to taking up the role at NUI Galway, Kate has been a secondary school teacher in both the States and in Ireland um, for over a decade. Kate, you're very welcome to the SESI staff room. Thanks so much for, for having me. I look forward to a, an interesting but informal conversation. Uh, Kate, talk to me about your career starting in the States and then moving home to Ireland. Now, the question is, the, the question is a loaded one because it says beginning career in the States before moving home to Ireland. Is, uh, talk to me about that. Is it is States... You're born in the States and then you moved over here or you're Irish? Tell us that story. Yeah, that's that's the confusing one. Let me tell you, Garda vetting forms are a great crack where, where I'm from. <laughs> There's lots of ringing my mother and asking desperately. So, um, yeah, I suppose the simple version is I was born in the States to an American father and Irish mother and we came home. Think when I was six months old, um, and I spent the majority of my childhood here in Ireland. Um, so despite my accent, um, you know, I was very much educated here, and my family moved to the States at the very difficult age of 13. <laughs> and I ended up leaving Irish secondary school. I was supposed to go to go to secondary school in the States and, and try to navigate, you know, what was an entirely different space from a small rural national school, you know, outside of Moat. <laughs> um, to, what to... was that like, Kate? Seriously, now, what was that like from Moat to the States? Like, I, I suppose I was lucky in that I was familiar with, you know, s- suburban New England that we had, you know, been there on and off and visited and had family there. So I, I knew what I was getting into, but that was kind of the problem um, that I, I knew what I was about to face. Yeah, it, it was just a different planet. You know, you, you kind of, at 13, we had always had a bit of freedom in Ireland. You know, you're, you're not monitored when you're outside or doing things with your friends or moving classroom to classroom. And I, I moved to this environment where things were so locked down that we were led to the canteen to have lunch and led back to the classroom. And it was it was so authoritarian and strange to someone like me that I, I when people would ask, you know, what was your childhood like over there? I said, well, have you ever read Lord of the Flies? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that things were, were very casual, you know, in, in terms of, you know, just how we related to each other and how we, you know, played and, and got on out in the countryside, you know, all of the terribly dangerous but, things we did. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it amazing how kids kids adapt? Kids kids adapt, overcome, and get on with it, basically. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the power of being a child. <laughs> It took a couple of years. <laughs> just put it that I can way. imagine. I can imagine. Talk to me about the overview. So look at teaching. You got into teaching. And then you went from teaching in secondary schools to teaching in higher education. Talk to me about that jump. So first of all, teaching. How did you get into it? Did you always want to be a teacher? 
Yeah, so I suppose I, I got interested in teaching that one during, I suppose, my years living in Ireland. My mom taught further ed and taught, you know, adult learners and, and teenage learners, you know, in kind of business studies and IT and that kind of thing. And because my parents were divorced, I, I often went with her, you know, that I, it was, she, I didn't have a babysitter. I would go to class with her in the evening or I'd hang out in the school, you know, in my free time or when I was finished school. And I saw honestly, just how much fun she had with her students and how much she enjoyed her work. So I suppose I, I, you know, when you're looking at careers and, you know, some, some students at, you know, 17 or 18 are so certain, I didn't really know at the time, you know, what, what I wanted to, to focus on, but I, I think it became evident, like, honestly, that teaching was maybe a noble choice that it was something I could do with the particular talents I had. And, you know, if anyone knew what it was like to be a bit of a tearaway student um, during those years in the States, it was me. And I, to be honest, I, I wanted to help yeah, students that were going through difficult times, much like I had, and, you know, I always kind of took that slant to being the, the empathetic teacher, um, you know, and the kind teacher. So, so I did that and I, I taught in the States for two years um, in a large inner city high school in the state in Connecticut. And I was a new graduate. I was doing my master's at night and, and kind of planning for moving home. And then I moved home in 2007. And I, you know, it was just on the cards the whole time that as much as I adapted to the States, I just desperately wanted to be home. But, you know, in 2007, there just weren't permanent jobs. So for from 2007 through 15, I just bounced around. I think I was in something like 14 different schools. Wow. Everything from private boarding schools to youth reach to subbing in primary schools, like everything under the sun. Like my CV is, is quite long and, and diverse, you know, just, I suppose, taking anything you could get. And, you know, I really wanted to work in education. I was kind of desperately missing it you know during those periods of unemployment where you know that were kind of inevitable that it just you know it broke my heart not to be doing what I loved and honestly starting higher education was was kind of a whim I saw this learning technologist post for three months at NUI Galway and I had just finished up in one of the ETBs there was nothing on the cards you know you're facing for any of the precarious teachers listening to this you know you know what it's like you're facing three months without pay and the potential of not having a paycheck again in september and i applied for this post you know thinking whatever happens it'll be great experience you know it, it, that it's it's you know i'm interested in technology this is my wheelhouse and it became a new career. is it is it a very is it a very different thing casey it's something mm -hmm. I, I don't so to be sitting there wondering what next basically not to just oversimplify what, what you've said so you're sitting there you've done because i met you you were in a secondary school in well i met you through ceci but you were in a secondary school in uh, last year yeah 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 um, i remember that um what like how do you go from sitting down wondering what's next to third level talk me through that because i'd imagine it's a very different discipline it's a very different thing altogether yeah it's it's a funny one because honestly there there wasn't you know in the initial phase of that there wasn't much thought it was you know i'm going to apply for this post it's three months if i'm successful it's a new opportunity but to be honest i, I would say the transition was really facilitated by the assistant director of kelt 
and now project manager of the EDTL project that I'm working on with Sharon Flynn. And Sharon was so supportive, you know, of the team and but me in particular that summer and kind of beyond that it became quite clear, you know, early on that despite my own kind of hesitancy or reservations about my skill set, you know, that dealing with with academics that were smarter than me and better than me, you know, you, you have all that kind of imposter syndrome stuff to work through. And to be honest, she was just so supportive that, you know, eventually it became kind of clear that, hey, maybe I can do this. Maybe this is something because maybe that teaching experience and that adaptability and just, you know, the, the variety of experiences you bring from teaching, you know, maybe there's a, quite a bit of credence in that. And I, I think it's mm. actually proven, you know, that that's been my, my superpower to some extent is that, yeah, yeah. you know, when you teach in, in so many different settings, you know, that there's a part of me, even now in my work, I kind of shrug when things go wrong and say, well, you know, unless it's on fire, <laughs> like nothing's really wrong because, you know, when you're in a classroom, you deal with everything you can ever imagine. Every teacher you talk to has, mm. you know, interesting <laughs> stories about, about, you know, being in the coal phase. So, you know, I, I think just having that wealth of experience has, has definitely helped me because when you're working with people, especially as a learning technologist, you know, we have so many different subject areas and disciplines and so many people from different levels of the career from kind of you know top professors and leading in their field to new you know new new academics and and kind of staff that are new to profession and it, you know you have to adapt when you're working with them you know you're switching between technologies you're switching between their subjects or their discipline you're looking at their different contexts and you know that adaptability that you develop in teaching it becomes <laughs> very useful across a wide variety of circumstances now this is the uh, computers and education society of ireland podcast so i mean we're going to have to talk about technology in teaching at some stage mm -hmm. so i mean using technology to support your teaching was that something is that something you have you always used technology or is this a new skill set that you took on to get you to where you are now or were you always comfortable using tech you know, I, I think I got a little bit of a curiosity bug from watching what my mom was teaching. So I would always play around with things, you know, so when we got our first PC when I was a teenager, you know, it was very much about, okay, crack my knuckles and say, how can I figure this thing out? What can I do? You know, so that curiosity was certainly always there. And when I started teaching, you know, again, like, like any kind of school, you know, setting that the technology is so varied across the different schools you're, you're working in, but for me, no, it was always there. I was always experimenting and, and it was kind of, it was always part of, you know, what I was trying to showcase as, you know, part of what I could bring to a school, especially when you're really constantly on the job hunt. But to be honest, it, I think coming to the first SESI conference, I know I alluded to that in the, the keynote was, you know, in 2000, oh, what year was it? 2012? 2012. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> 10 years. Um, yeah, wow. <laughs> it wasn't until I, I, I kind of did that that I, you know, something clicked in me and said, you know, this is really something you have to, you know, it's part of your practice anyway, but you should really be highlighting what you're doing, you know, really engaging with a larger community. You know, everything I was kind of doing because I was on my own or switching schools was very much, 
you know, just, I wasn't sharing it anywhere. I wasn't, you know, talking to other people or talking to other teachers about my practice. So yeah, it was always there. Um, so I suppose that's obviously what helped me to, to uh, snag a position as a learning technologist and, and actually make a career of it because it was, you know, part and parcel of what I was doing. But I think the community helped boost my confidence in, in using it, certainly. Uh, we can't step over the fact that um, you were this year's SESICON's keynote. So we're, we're not, we're not going to let that slide. Um, for those who, who weren't there, talk us... Not so much the keynote, but what was it like to, because you mentioned 2012. So I'm plotting out the journey. So the school of Mount Bellevue, I want to do something different. Sessi, you're keynoting at Sessi. Mm. What's that like? I'd say my, my first reaction was, uh, well, it's a good thing we're not charging any money for this conference. <laughs> and I really, I really, I, I, my reaction that I was going to include in the slides was kind of, you know, no, 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 no. Well, maybe yes, no. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure about doing it, but, you know, I, I suppose I, I'm, I'm ever the sucker as an English teacher for, for, you know, looking at the trajectory and looking at the narrative and yeah, the, the fact that it was 10 years on that journey was what kind of spoke to me, but you know, I, I think it was important for me to talk about how valuable that community was in, I suppose, urging me to, to kind of focus on the journey more than anything. You know, the work, I was already doing it and, you know, seeing kind of what people were doing just highlighted that other people were doing it too. And, it, you know, it, I had come home and you know, when you're the substitute teacher, you don't get sent on CPD. You're the one that's meant to be covering CPD, you know, mm -hmm. so other people can go to CPD so the permanent staff can leave. So I very rarely had any kind of opportunity to go to anything. And, you know, when I kind of came across the SESI community, I said, I'm going to pay for this. And I paid every year, you know, and went every year, despite the fact was I, if I was working or not working or whatever the circumstances were, it was kind of a come hell or high water thing that I, I made sure I made the conference every year. And, you know, it was important for me to highlight that, that I think, you know, especially since kind of March, 2020, but again, even in recent years, there's such, you know, there's, there's a plethora of kind of CPD opportunities out there now, and there's so many resources and so many things happening. You know, if you go onto Twitter as an educator, it's a very busy place now. And for me, I really wanted to focus on in, in that talk, uh, you know, a little bit about my work, you know, and my current work, but also just what the community, what the value in our community is that I, I think that can go unnoticed or, you know, especially if you're new to the community, you know, and you're used to going to other types of CPD, I think, you know, that there, there should be some focus on just the encouragement and kind of support and as you said earlier you know friendships that have developed as part of this community you know that so many of us have you know at least 10 or 15 good friends that you know have emerged from an you know a teacher's conference that doesn't yeah, happen yeah. <laughs> that's not normal <laughs> you know I go to a lot of conferences and I don't have very close friends because I went to them so you know I, I was I didn't have enough time to highlight all of that I suppose it's really good to have this conversation because that would have been a lengthy, lengthy keynote if we were really talking about the journey. But, you know, it was important to me to, to highlight that. And especially, at, you know, being the last conference before our big 50th celebration next year as he turns 50. Um, so I was it very happy. Must have, um, 
it must have made you feel good. Like, I mean, how did you, what was the, like, there's, all, there's always a reaction when you walk away from a presentation of, oh my God, what have I just done? <laughs> that must be, <laughs> that must be, that must be multiplied by a thousand when you walk away from a keynote. And Kate, between me, you, and the people listening, you're not, you're not, you're not, here's me and who's like me, I'm going to go at this and I'm going to nail this to the wall. You're very, you're, you're, you're shy, you, you know your skill set. I can't imagine you, I can't imagine what goes on inside you when you're up there doing the keynote. And that's what I was getting at with the question is, yeah. how did you feel? What was that feeling? What was it like? Was it, was it an achievement? <laughs> Tick in the box? Oh, uh, yeah, there are so many emotions. Now you're right to probe uh, about those feelings because, like I said, I vacillated wildly um, up until <laughs> about five minutes before, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's a very different thing to be presenting at a conference at home where you can literally run for the hills. It's a bit easier to escape <laughs> than a physical lecture hall. But, no, I, I really, honestly, there, there was an awful lot of self-doubt there because I, I don't view myself in any way as someone that would be interesting to hear from. I, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, across learning technology and higher ed, I think, you know, what I do is maybe mildly interesting. So there was, there was a lot of vacillation there. Like, yes, of course I was, you know, proud to be asked, but to be honest, it was more of a relief because when it was over and it's, I hate to say it, but it's, it's like you're, you know, saying is shy. Yes. Introverted. Yes. Also don't listen to me or pay attention to me. <laughs> you know, I, I am very much one of those. And I suppose that those kind of feelings really, they, they cause conflict with the kind of work we do because we're so out there, you know, you're presenting so mm. often that you're recorded so often that you're talking like, all you know, you spend your whole day presenting, talking on webinars and, and different things. And there's that kind of exhaustion that comes when you're like me, <laughs> that, you know, from, from being in those spaces. So there, there certainly is a conflict because, you know, some colleagues are so great at putting themselves out there and they like mm. that limelight. And, you know, you could tell they're getting that buzz from it. Like the perfectly honest answer is, yeah, I, I was, you know, just, I ran from the computer <laughs> and ran away yeah. after, but, was I honored? Absolutely. You know, I'm just not entirely convinced that you could really convince me I was the right person to do it, but that's my self-deprecating nature, I guess. Number one, your presentation was very good. I really enjoyed it. I think you did really well. And I know for a fact that I'm not the only person thinking that. So take the credit. You did well. So I know that embarrasses you no end, so I'm going to move on. So I'm going to start down that journey, that road, that path, technology adopted as part of EDTL at NUIG. Talk to me about EDTL project at NUIG. That's a, there's an awful lot of letters there. It is that our work is kind of swimming in acronyms enough to, to confuse any person that yeah, doesn't have access to a glossary. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I apologize for that. I'll give you a context, I suppose, on the project first and sure. try to try to outline it as simply as possible. Because as actually Sharon Flynn, the project manager, has often pointed out to me, you know, you get immersed in these worlds when you're working on a project for a couple of years, you know, so take your time and actually 
try to set the context. So I suppose like any of these things that happen in higher ed, you know, it's, it's a funded project, the Enhancing Digital Teaching and Learning Project. It's run through the Irish Universities Association. So it has provided resources, including people like myself, to work and support the, you know, the incorporation of digital technologies at each of the seven IUA institutions. So in my case, I'm the lead at NUI Galway, um, and I started that in the summer of 2019. So I was lucky in the sense that, you know, I was already working in Celt as a learning technologist, so I, I would continue working within Celt as a learning technologist, but with a specific focus, you know, full-time on working with staff and supporting digital teaching and learning. But I, I suppose it's a very good question because that context of supporting digital teaching and learning changed drastically within the early months of the project. Um, summer of 19, we were meeting as a you know project team up in Dublin, uh, people were getting hired onto the project from the various institutions. We were forming this kind of national project team and starting you know kind of small work that initially my focus was on digital resources. So I was working with a small kind of pilot group of around 20 staff um, developing interactive learning materials. So using tools like H5P and Nobly and articulate and producing multimedia like podcasts and videos to, um, you know, integrate into that interactive multimedia. And, you know, we were kind of working on learning design and working on various approaches and it was great and it was rewarding, but it, you know, it was quite small scale. And we had our project launch I think that November in 2019, and we were just gaining a bit of momentum and kind of forming, you know, this national team and, and cementing our work, I suppose, at any, you know, each of the local institutions. And then COVID hit. So, mm. you know, like everyone in March 2020, we had to refocus. And, you know, let me tell you, it was a really great time <laughs> to be working on digital teaching and learning because we became quite popular. Um, lots of people were doing digital teaching and learning and entire universities moved online. Um, How well you plan that? <laughs> yeah. And we, we've often, you know, it's and it, we, we always, we try to be so sensitive about it because obviously, you know, so many of us have lost people. It's been a terrible time but mm -hmm. from the project point of view. It does almost seem opportunistic because all of a sudden people were listening. So, you yeah. know, on, on kind of a national and local level, we formed, you know, a community of people that, you know, follow our newsletter and attend kind of regular webinars. But, you know, on the local level, I had to look at kind of reformatting everything I was doing to just support staff to get online and to get to grips with digital now under these emergency circumstances. So we did an awful lot around, I suppose, modifying the original kind of learning design workshops or things I normally would have done to just plan to get online and take your resources and remix your resources and think about designing for that online context. And I suppose the dust has settled a couple of different times, you know, between pivots to campus and back off campus and back again, and everything's, you know, feels like we're constantly pivoting somehow. But, um, you know, in that time, there was some space and, and some opportunity when you're, you, I suppose, when things moved online, that staff also had more of an opportunity to meet us for CPD opportunities. So I was able to run more workshops, run the Universal Design for Learning course, run some of the things that normally 
wouldn't have been at such a scale in the face-to-face environment because you would be asking staff to maybe sign up for a three-hour workshop in such and such a place on campus and you know everyone's busy and you know trying to get places so so I think the online space certainly opened things up that bit but really the project has been you know it, it I suppose pivoted like everything else but really worked to support staff throughout each change that we were facing so like some of the resources i shared in that keynote like including the that edtl approach that we published um, in the summer of 2020 we sat as a project team and carefully deliberated about you know the different topics included about the different resources we would use that we're using open resources to create open that open resource and you know, there, there, there was quite a lot of thought, you know, infographics look lovely and, you know, publishing a lot of, you know, help and, and tips and webinars and things looks great. But to be honest, even to, to, I suppose, give a nod to my project colleagues, you know, there's so much thought and careful consideration into the, the work that we did do to support staff. So, you know, even as the project mm-hmm. starts winding down towards September, you know, I, I think we were very responsive and it, it kind of really proves a need for more investment in the, you know, in digital teaching and learning and investment in those that support digital teaching and learning to happen if we're going to remain flexible enough to offer these options in the institutions. So uh, EDTL, of course, for those for those who don't know or, or just miss it, is Enhanced Digital Teaching and Learning. Um, and that's, that's the project that we're talking about. Uh, can you... The question I've I've put forward and I have been putting forward since the very first sort of staff room, and I'm asking mm-hmm. everybody, people on the street, mm-hmm. random people, <laughs> what, what, how do you think things are going to change? How, in your opinion, how, do you think people are going to go, oh, thank God this is over, let's go back to it? Or do you think people are going to go, my God, we've learned some great skills. I'm going to use them to support my teaching. Yeah, you know, the the cautiously optimistic side of me says, yeah, everyone's going to learn from what happened and, (laughs) you know, and absolutely embrace everything that we've done. The, the logical you know, side of me is looking at what's happening in our own context or even across the project and that return to normal, that very much being enforced. So I, I, I remain conflicted. I think it is a wasted opportunity to take anything positive from the experience if we don't try to adopt some of what we did, because like, especially in our case, like some of the work we've done around inclusion and universal design and the way people redesigned their teaching to include more learners because it gave them space to think about, you know, how they would adapt in this online setting and adopting new things, you know, to see any of those practices abandoned is, you know, it wouldn't just be a waste, you know, it'd just be the greatest shame. So I think it's going to take time. I think the the problem is, I think, and it, it's actually relevant across probably every sector, every workplace, is honestly that people haven't had any t- chance to reflect you know, at what point are things going to calm down enough where, you know, everyone has two months of a summer to say, you know what, we're going to think about our practice and we're, we're going to, you know, stiff yeah. things, you know, it, it's, it's, I don't think that's happened yet. Yeah. And I suppose that was, that was one of the questions, one of the discussion points I had with at the very, very start. I can't remember off the top of my head now, but it was, 
when is the reflection going to take place? We are educators, you are educators, we are educators. At some point, we need to stop, drop, and reflect. But I fear that that's not going to happen. I fear that we're just going to stop, drop. Summer is here, back to school again, all done without the reflection. Mm. Because I believe, I firmly believe, and I work with teachers all the time, mm. they, they're not seeing the skill set that they've, that they've, they've gained. Mm. And it, the mind boggles. I'm going, last year you didn't know what a PowerPoint was. <laughs> this year you... This year you've created a virtual classroom. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, it's... it's... So look at, um, moving on, reimagining learning for an inclusive and flexible future. I love that title. I love that. <laughs> Talk to me about EDL's approach to reimagining learning for an inclusive and flexible future. How does that work? You know, part of that, you know, I suppose comes out of some of the work we're doing as we, we finish the project that some of the conferences and events were, were kind of contributing to, you know, that would, I, I suppose I started to draw upon some of those themes and that inclusivity and sustainability and, and you know, tie into the digital, you know, so well that, you know, as we plan ahead, I, like, I agree fully with what you're saying, you know, that we, we haven't had that time to reflect. It seems like we probably won't. So part of what the project is starting to look at is, you know, what does the future look like if we, you know, give ourselves some time, you know, if we give ourselves the 10 years, the 20 years and asking, you know, our own, our own students and student partners and student interns that work with us, maybe, you know, what would, what will education look like for your children or for the next generation? I think that's where we've kind of had to pitch things, but really, you know, I think the, the the constant kind of adaptation that I've even alluded to earlier, I think that's where some of the reimagining comes in. Like what we, what we've done with staff throughout this time is we've talked about not reinventing the wheel. You know, in most cases, like our staff have digital resources. You know, they have approaches, they have assessments, they have things that they're doing that can be either simply enhanced or remixed to make things, you know, that little bit more engaging or that little bit more different or that little bit more inclusive. So we've been really talking about that, that concept of reimagining because we, we've already covered so much with staff, you know, I, I suppose I alluded to their, you know, kind of UDL as an approach, open resources as an approach, learning design as, as an approach. And, you know, it, it's really to start, weaving together the loose ends of all of the work we've done and and look at you know what what could potentially happen in the future and i think really it's about community it's about adaptation and it's about giving yourself space to reflect on what's worked and what hasn't and you know the the idea of reimagining is really around reimagining for good you know that like it would be remiss you know to say that moving online hasn't had any benefits when we look at, you know, reduction of carbon footprint, when we look at the issues, like especially in our case in higher ed, that students face around housing, around funding, around fees, you know, there's so many obvious issues that are, that are not secrets, they're, you know, headline news in in most cases. And, 
you know, we, we look at everything we're dealing with kind of as not just a national community, but as a world, you know, and as a larger community, you know, there has to be some change for good. Um, you know, I was always kind of influenced and, you know, still am, but like, you know, the work of Catherine Cronin, you know, someone that advocated for years around, you know, online and remote and options to include learners that don't have access, that can't access, that are caregivers, that are, you know, that are just don't have access to education in the same way. And I think, you know, we have to take a look not only at our, our kind of sector and, and across the country, but just around the problems in general that, you know, everyone is facing that. How can we sustain change for good using the, the changes we've made? And like, you know, in very simple terms, we're talking about creating open reusable resources, you know, to contribute to the commons, to the greater good, to share, you know, across, you know, with educators, you know, far and wide. And we're talking about, you know, simple things to, to reduce, you know, a climate crisis or to reduce stress on students, you know, trying to access education. Like, I know that's a very meandering answer, but I suppose that the problem in that is such a loaded, you know, it's such a loaded topic. And from our, you know, very local context, you know, within the institutions, you know, we're trying to do that work and we're doing it at a small scale, but hopefully evidencing the work we're doing within the whole national project, you know, across the institutions does start to highlight, you know, to to folks across higher ed, you know, what what changes really do need to take place. So you've 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 spoke about you've spoke about reimagining education and sort of learning from what we've done and reflection. You briefly spoke about the inclusivity, so inclusive talk, like that word inclusive. That's a powerful, powerful word. How does learning become inclusive? I, I suppose that's and inclusive to who or to what? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and that's the thing, to be honest, like, and it happens from time to time, even when I get asked to to give a workshop or give a demo session on universal design or inclusivity, I do kind of dread it for that very reason, because there's only so much you can get through, you know, in an hour or in a short time to explain what, exactly what you mean. So I, I fully agree. I suppose in our case, you know, what we're talking about in, with inclusion is, are some of those barriers that I've, you know, been talking about there in, in terms of, you know, how can students access education? You know, you're talking about commuting issues and, housing and, and access and, you know, the barriers that I suppose stop students from even getting a foot in the door, you know, at the first instance. But then from the teaching and learning point of view, we do an awful lot of work around making your classroom, whatever that classroom is, it's often very often the virtual learning environment and, and the space in which, you know, materials um, exist. And also your physical classroom of, you know, what the attitudes and I suppose the community built within in that classroom that is it is it inclusive but you're right it's it's really it's a loaded term I suppose in the simplest case what I would say is making learning open to all that not setting up barriers in any way that would you know I suppose impede a student from accessing materials or accessing learning and that goes from the very granular you know looking at digital resources and encouraging staff to, you know, include their alt text and get their headings right and looking at color contrast and formats and all the stuff you do when you're designing digitally, 
but then through, you know, the kind of larger pedagogical, you know, issues around, you know, how do I make students feel seen in the classroom? You know, when I'm creating materials or I'm talking to students, am I using, you know, photos that represent what my students look like, who they are? Am I representing all types of families? You know, am I, am I, saying hey guys to the classroom and excluding some students based on my gendered language you know they're kind of from the very small to the very large things and and that's not including as i'm saying you know all the 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 larger issues around actually the barriers to getting in the door so i I fully agree it's a you know i was probably avoiding the topic because there's so much to talk about within it there is there really is and and it was to be fair it was very loaded um yeah a loaded (laughs) question we'd need another podcast just to talk about that i wonder um and it bothers me a little bit and i I have to say i haven't thought about this the first time i thought about this is when i when my son was born three and a half years ago and then i thought about it again nine months ago when my daughter was born so in our town we have a co-ed school and that's all well and good uh in the town beside us there's a boys school and there's a girls school so if my daughter attends the girls' school, she can't do woodwork. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think that's unfair. But I think what, the, what, what COVID has brought us, mm-hmm. and now this is, this is the key. Now, whatever about learning French online, it's project-based learning courses done virtually. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think there's something in that. I think that's... And that's only one little... Yeah part of the inclusivity i I fully agree and and that's you know what you can see you know i suppose commonalities across the sectors i know i'm one part of why i was so hesitant with my keynote was that really you know i'm very much focused in the higher ed realm right now but you know you're absolutely right that it's it's looking at you know those similarities across the sectors and and absolutely you know having your daughter eventually face those barriers for no obvious reason would be. But that's the thing. There's no reason. There's no good reason. You know, by the time she gets to, gets to woodworking, there would be no obvious reason why there should be a barrier, you know, and and that's, that's, that's the piece, you know, that needs to be kept on board. And, and, you know, if you look at Ceci's work, you know, you think about, you know, maybe the leaving cert subjects that don't always have a teacher in schools and how do we, you know, facilitate these things to maybe happen in a more wider accessible scale. And that's not, you know, to commit us to anything or commit anyone to anything, but, you know, those opportunities, you know, are there. And, and to be honest, the same thing happened for us in higher ed that, you know, when we'd often look for a guest speaker, you'd be talking about flying someone over for some far from place, paying <laughs> for, you know, travel and accommodation and arranging these things, even aside from the funding or aside from, you know, just the, the work to make these things happen and to make the dates happen, you know, it, it opened up so many doors to just, you know, bringing in new faces to teaching and learning and, and new experiences that, you know, that good that came from that, you know, it would be a shame to see. I'm, I'm. It would be a shame just to walk away from that. And I mean, my cards on the table. I have, mm-hmm. I, um, the inclusivity thing. Something you said to me is mm-hmm. ringing true, and it's. I'm always pulled up on this, mm-hmm. and in particular by our very own Mags Amund. <laughs> it's going to be on soon. Okay. Soon, Mags, I will find you. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I will open, I will walk into a class full of boys and girls and go, hi guys. Yeah. It's not necessarily wrong and not an awful lot of people will notice, but yeah. one might. Yeah. And that's not good enough. That's the problem. And it's 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 not that it's not that you should be because I got given out to for bringing this up because oh you we're living in a PC world and blah 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 blah. <laughs> it's not that. It's about missing out on that one person or it it just that putting out that one person. And I was that one person. And from what you said, Kate, you were you you can identify as that one person. Yeah. So maybe we should be looking at looking including them. As opposed to this PC, PC and inclusivity, they a lot of the time people are tying them hand in hand, and they're not really being politically correct and being inclusive are different things. Yeah. They're thought to be the same, but they are very, they're very different, um, and, very different things. Yeah, and to be honest, it's really you know that that element of letting things get politicized because you're trying to use you know gender neutral language or something yeah that's not the approach you know we would try to take it all in the classroom it's it's about you know the universal design principles effectively stating that designing your teaching and learning or in this case your practice or however you interact with students or communities designing in such a way so that no student is disadvantaged that all students are advantaged in some way, but that you're not, you know, you're, you're not disadvantaging anyone and that everyone can benefit from that, you know, from that change. So, you know, by coming into a classroom and saying, hey, folks, you know, yeah. it's, you're not affected, you know, you're not going to single out, that, you know, the one person that might take issue. And there are little things that, you know, what we say, and I suppose it's a maybe an important point to make, you know, when we're talking about inclusivity is, you know, he won't always get everything right. We all make gaffes. We all make mistakes. We all maybe say something that was so ingrained in us, you know, as children or when we were younger before we knew what something meant that everyone is prone to these mistakes. And, and you know, and that's absolutely fine is that, you know, if we're giving ourselves time to learn and reflect and, you know, I, I, it's more important that we're, you know, making changes or, or becoming aware, you know, the awareness piece is, is what we would be hoping we, you know, kind of instill in staff more than saying, you know, oops, I made a mistake and, and kind of getting a slap on the wrist. It's, it's much more about the learning experience. What do you think the classroom is going to look like in the future? Yeah, we're trying to tease this out for a chapter right now. It's <laughs> another loaded question. Because I'll tell you why I'm asking. I took a picture of, and I use this all the time, and I did this on purpose. So I, I took a picture of, a classroom, an old classroom. I can't remember where we were. It was some park when there was animals running around and they had an old part of the village and they had the old schoolhouse. And I took a picture of the old schoolhouse. And then Jake was in, my son was in, and he was playing with one of the abacuses. And I took a picture of him in the old schoolhouse. And I put those two pictures up as part of my presentation. And I said, name the year. And they're all, ah, 1912, 1905, 1817. And I was going, no, 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 no. It was taken last year because that's my son and he's, he's yeah. three years old. <laughs> so the physical classroom may not change, but the classroom in uh, the use of the term classroom as in a learning space, yeah. I think that's going to evolve. And I suppose that's yeah. what I'm asking. What do you think yeah. that is going to look like? 
Yeah, and I, I was just going to agree with you. You know, you look across any, you know, stage of classroom or, you know, even the old schools around this country, you know, nothing has fundamentally changed. And when you walk back into a lecture hall like we did in August to try to support kind of a hybrid teaching or high flex teaching, you know, you go back to that same rigorous model in the same rows. And it was a little bit depressing, to be honest, to see, you know, everyone return to that after trying to get so creative with their learning. For me, I think you know, the classroom for us, you know, there's probably two sides to that is absolutely learning spaces is something we've explored in Kelt now for a number of years. Um, you know, we, we've had Kelt conferences, you know, fully about kind of the learning space and what the university should look like. And there's a new library project and redesign kind of coming on board. And there's so much work done and there's so many great kind of international examples and, and some national examples around spaces. You know, I think the, the design term for both that and the kind of the online space or the digital space is going to have to be around flexibility. You know, the physical classroom has to be usable by students, you know, in this day and age and beyond that, you know, things need to be able to be moved around, that students need flexible furniture, they need places to charge phones, they need places to, to work with devices and work with multitudes of devices, they need access to equipment and you know i've seen some great examples like there's a learning commons at the university of mary washington that's just phenomenal you know that there's places i've been and different events i've been to that are that are just fantastic but the digital space is really i suppose where, where my main concerns would be and you know in our sector you're very much kind of you know i suppose stuck i hate to say stuck but you know it, where we're kind of stuck with the vle to some extent that whatever you're using whether it's you know blackboard or brightspace or any of their canvas or any of those right now currently or moodle but in the you know in the future i think there has to be some some more nuanced attention to the digital spaces that whatever the platforms end up looking like you know i i think generally teacher whatever the sector you know you're in really needs to be able to design something a bit more customized, a bit more flexible and, and to, to make learning happen and be facilitated by digital spaces that are that bit more flexible and where the digital doesn't, isn't noticeable to some extent, that digital doesn't become the barrier to accessing either the channels of communication I, or where the resources are, or whatever, you know, you're doing in that space. I think that's a really good point. I like that the, the digital becomes... It's not a thing. It's not a term we should be falling over. We shouldn't be tripping over digital. No. We shouldn't be tripping over words like VLE. We shouldn't no. be tripping over. As educators in school, you, you, you don't. Like it's, I, I often said this, and I, I'm doing this for a few years now, and I've gone, and the, the, one of the teachers would come up to me in school and go, I don't know how to program in the photocopier. And I'm going, it's not your business programming the photocopier. That's no. why if it was easy, I wouldn't have a job. You know what I mean? So your, your job, you need, you need to be teaching. And I, I fear that the look of the space, the learning space, mm -hmm. if we start focusing in on VLEs mm -hmm. and platforms, I think we're on a slippery slope mm -hmm. to losing that, mm -hmm. that look, yeah. that vision. We need to be thinking about like exactly what you said and exactly what you're doing. Um, we need to be we need to be thinking about how do we make it inclusive how does Hassan the student mm -hmm. have access to learning from where he is mm -hmm. 
not let's provide them with a VLE, a computer, a webcam, mm-hmm. and a microphone. Those are terms that the IT world put on stuff. Yeah. Whereas if we remove the terminology mm-hmm. and tell me what you're looking for, and then we build the um, the platform or yeah. we build a vision on that. I, I, yeah. I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, and I, Did I, I miss the point. No, no, no. And I was going to say, even I would summarize it just by saying, yeah, it's, it's about the experience, you know, whatever that experience is. And even one example I use that despite, you know, obviously working in a university can be slightly, you know, different in that we have access to things. We have licenses for Blackboard Collaborate and Teams and Zoom. And, you know, you kind of you pick and choose what tools you like. Like for me, even during this period, I use Zoom to run workshops and, you know, and to teach partly because... I can ignore it. I'm not trying to do anything fancy. I know how, but I, you know, for the most part, I don't want to run polls or to do things. I want to talk to the small group of academic staff that I'm teaching and not have that get in the way. And when you're talking and you can very simply see each other or a few slides to give a demonstration or, you know, share your screen, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't impede that experience. It facilitates it and enables us to connect safely in a time where, you know, we obviously can't. And obviously we can, you know, save and record and do all those things. But it's really about the experience because it kind of blends into the background of the way I use it. I get to focus on the experience and on the community and on the conversation rather than trying to do anything. And it's not to say, you know, I, I, I'm exploring methods around hybrid and high flex kind of approaches. And, and that's part of my work. But for me, you know, when you're dealing, especially with staff who are want to learn about technologies and, and kind of tease out, you know, the pedagogy behind why we might use some of these technologies, it's not about online teaching in that context. And it's not about showing off what you can do in the fancier stuff. It's about, you know, pushing that to the background and focusing on the experience. And you're right. It's absolutely about, you know, that student, wherever they might be, can they access these things? Can they access the resources they need? And is the experience good? Yeah, exactly. I think it's it's it has to be experiential. Mm-hmm. It has to be. We know how we feel. Mm-hmm. We remember how we feel. There's, a, there's mm-hmm. something about teachers. We don't remember what we learn, but we know, we don't remember what, I don't remember what she taught me, but I know, remember how she made me feel. I, I think that's an important part of, part of, uh, part of learning. I know that our very own, my business partner in a different, in a different uh, guise came up with the idea of sending students, Chris, Chris Rayner, legend, came up with uh, sending kit, the maker kit, send it to the classroom and he'll facilitate online. Physically, and my instinct was, oh, we're going to need webcams, we're going to need microphones, we're going to need the Wi Fi. And he's going, nah, dude, we're, the camera on me, the camera on them, and zoom in between, and we'll take it from there. And I think that I, th- I think that was a lovely approach. Yeah, um, I think it's a lovely approach to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kate, thank you very much for joining us on the uh, on the Sessi staff room. I is 52 minutes in I can't believe it yeah. fair play I could talk to you for another 52 minutes to be fair um, and we're going to have to figure out how to get it some sort of group discussion and uh, yeah. group discussion back mm-hmm. no listen thanks very much that was uh, the quickest meeting I've had today because it did pass by <laughs> <laughs>